Well, Andy, uh, thanks for taking a little bit of time to visit about the Medicaid transformation project. Obviously, this is um, a project we, we both share a much deeper familiarity of and for, and so it'll, it'll actually be a little fun to riff with you over the, the next few minutes. I feel like this is work. just recording of our regular daily conversations <laughs> about the project. That's fine. Hopefully not. Hopefully we'll spare, <laughs> spare, spare people from sausage making. <laughs> some of that. I think the very first time I tried to do a podcast interview, it was with you. It was three years ago at Hems. And I had this little boom mic thing I attached to my iPhone. And it, you were still the administrator for CMS. And I remember asking you what your aspirations were in your post-CMS life. And you talked a bit about some of the things you wanted to do. And I, the first question I'd just love to ask is, when you left the administration, what have you done that you're, you're excited about? And are there things that, that have been kind of left undone that you still have on your, your roadmap? I defined my post-CMS life around the following theme, which is what do I want to be different in 10 years after I left? Running CMS is, in healthcare terms is the greatest job you can have if you like healthcare problem solving. I mean, you're literally responsible for 130 million Americans' healthcare. There's a lot that needs to be done. And to my mind, you know, I'm gonna give the next 10 years to making the changes that I can help make some of them are policy changes. We need to be in a very different place in a decade with policies that actually meet the needs of the American public. I don't think, whether you have insurance or not, I don't think most people feel well served by health policy. And I think we need health policies that enforce people's ability to have access to a regular source of care, not just care when they, when they urgently need it, and that connect people so that they don't have to make the very difficult choice of spending money on health care versus any other expense in their life. And we have to pay attention to the issues that are really pervasive problems like health equity challenges and making sure that all, all communities get served well. So health policy is kind of one area of focus. We launched this organization, United States of Care, and I think they're doing a great job. And you've been, you've been a big part of that, David. You know, second has been, if we're gonna solve problems in this country, we're gonna do it through innovation. It was one of the things that we do better um, than any other country in the world. And we shouldn't go at any one of our problems <clears throat> without trying to tap into the innovative capabilities of the country. And we just need to innovate in the right ways and in the right places. The major problems we face are we don't have an, a good enough mental health care system. We've got uh, too many women who needlessly have unhealthy pregnancies. We have too many people who die too young. We have, we have an addiction problem in this country. And yet you look at where most of our innovation capacity has been in this country. It's, it's been creating Fitbits for people like me. I'll love due respect to Fitbit and any other sensor company. This sort of actualized self for people who already have it pretty good isn't what's going to solve our healthcare challenges. So we launched an investment fund called Town Hall Ventures, which is investing exclusively in innovators that are committed to serving populations that have long been ignored and that are vulnerable. And then, and then finally, I'd say bringing that all together is this other project that you and I work on, which is how do we get the commitment and participation of the leaders of the healthcare system to treat the, the vulnerable populations in their community with as much joy and with as equal strategy as they do commercial populations, which reimburse for a hell of a lot more. And if we could only get our communities 
to say we're going to narrow that divide, we'll make tremendous progress. And so I feel good about these sets of activities, and they give me the opportunity to work on the kinds of things that I think are important. We're able to do things today that we weren't able to do three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, through capital, innovation, technology, policy, things we know work and don't work. And, and you said something a minute ago that in 10 years, things have to be radically different. And, and it feels to me that if, if we can do things today we couldn't do a few years ago, there's also things we won't be able to do in a few years. Talk about the criticality, Andy, of the moment we're living in and what happens if we, if we fail to make some of these changes. We have not adequately addressed resources for everybody in the country. We don't have a crisis of resources. We do have a crisis of inequality. And I think for a long time, people in this country who believe in free enterprise felt like our principal job is to grow the pie and everyone will do fine. I think we've actually made a crossover point where if we don't distribute the pie better, our ability to grow it is now greatly diminished. And I think that realization is, couldn't be more true than it is in healthcare. Inequality is the great threat to our times. I think it's the great threat to our environment. I think it's a great threat to healthcare. I think it's a great threat to our economy. And it is also being felt in political waves. But the good news is that if we approach these challenges with a set of tools, and a set of commitment from the community and a sense of win-win and a sense of partnership, these are very solvable problems. But I think our mindset has to be really focused on the areas that are affecting our community the greatest, and I think these are the ones. I love the term crisis of inequality, and I'm, I'm interested in this notion that maybe we've crossed the Rubicon culturally that our society is starting to see it. Do you believe that's true? Yeah, I think. And, and why? And I think that whether that's on the Republican side or the Democratic side, there are more people that are populist and are willing to throw out some of the things that are... Orthodox. Kind of, yeah, because they're not working for them. They're not making their lives better. I think people have seen too long wars tax cuts, college being unaffordable, healthcare being uh, unaffordable, with general insecurity people live with in this country. I'd say the majority of people in this country feel that if something bad happened from a health standpoint, they're not entirely sure that they'd be able to afford to take care of their family because some drug might not be covered by the insurance company or it might be too expensive or they could lose their job and not have insurance and they know everything is so expensive. And, you know, a medical bill from the ER is more money than the average person has in savings. So people feel very much on the brink, particularly moderate income uh, and fixed income people. And when you feel that way, when you get anxious, when you get insecure, you are willing to overturn things that, you know, that we've long held. And so people who are doing fine kind of wonder what's going on in this country because they're like, hey, why would we get rid of these great institutions of democracy that have served us so well. But there are a lot of people that haven't been served well or don't feel particularly well served. And they see the rich getting richer and they see lobbyists um, influencing policy. And, you know, there are a couple of things they can do about it. And they're trying to figure out what those things are. But 
but how they're reacting politically is just one of several reactions. I've I've known you now for a few years, worked closely with you in, in this capacity and others since uh, you left CMS. And a question I don't think I've ever asked you is, there, there are a lot of things you could go and spend your time doing. And as a post-CMS administrator and a post-Optum executive and, 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 there are a lot of different ways you can make a lot of money. And yet you have elected to to, to really devote your time and energy and talents and passion on, on this issue. What 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 is the, and it's interesting because you do represent kind of this apex of, of cultural cognizance in addressing this crisis of inequality, but why? Like what is the motivation for being, you know, post 50 and spending this key time, this key wealth generating part of your life focused on, on these issues? You know, I think when you're in your 30s, when you're in your 20s, when you're in your 40s, when you're in your 50s, and, and I'm sure when you're in your 60s and 70s, different things are important um, to you. And, you know, for all of us, you know, taking care of our families is, is number one. And, uh, and, you know, fulfillment beyond, you know, only begins when worry, when worry stops. And so for a lot of Americans, they're not in the situation that I'm in because they have to worry about the day-to-day. You know, I came out of CMS not being in a position where I have to worry about the day-to-day. And it's true, people will offer you all kinds of money to do all kinds of things. It's part of the problem in healthcare is there's so much money yeah. um, from that association. So the, the question is, you know, what do you want to do? And, you know, it's really corny, but when you're in your 50s is when I think you probably begin to think about, you know, how's it all going to feel at the end of the day? What am I going to be glad about? What's going to feel like I was a life well lived and what's not? And the amount of times you can count where you helped somebody are the kinds of things you feel good about. There's many people that have helped me in my life, and those aren't things that I forget. And I'm sure the same is true with you. And so at, at this stage, the question is, what am I in a position to help with? There was never a question about making money versus doing something like this. It's a question of what am I in best position to, to help with? And, you know, I believe that the capitalist system can work as part of this and, you know, we'll invest money and um, not investing money uh, to lose it. I'm investing money in companies that are serving underserved populations so that billions of dollars can, we can show that billions of dollars should flow to those communities. And, and, that's, and that's great. Hopefully there's a time in everybody's life when they're offered the opportunity to not just worry about themselves, but they, they're able to get a little bit of headroom, work past that, and figure out how to, to help and contribute. And I've, I'd say I've always been an ambitious person. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I was ambitious for myself. And now I'm probably twice as ambitious, but not at all ambitious for myself. And it's just a different feeling. We, we are living through the result of, of intergenerational, multi-decade, systemic poverty, forms of structural racism, misogyny, so on and so forth, that have created so many of these outcomes and so many of the vulnerabilities we see in different parts of the country. And this path out of this, this path to enhancing health as the basic building block of an economic productivity that is the building block of culture and society and prosperity, 
this is a moment where I think organizing the types of systems in a capitalistic context with good policy and in concert with well-intentioned parts of the system become critical. So let's take a walk through the three things. Let's talk policy for a few minutes. United States of care, you should take a, you should take a minute to, to define um, what it is you're trying to, to solve or address through United States of care, and then I'd love to talk Medicaid and health policy off of that. Yeah. Look, I think if we want the healthcare system we want, we're going to have to build a movement to get there. I don't think we should let politicians decide. We should build a movement to get there. And, you know, I've made a commitment to raise $100 million within a decade to have a healthcare system where people don't have to worry about paying for their healthcare anymore. That was a commitment that I made. The traditional way to do that is to say, I've raised $100 million and I'm going to start a PAC. And I'm going to use that PAC to give money to politicians, support policies that I like and I believe in. That would be one way to do it. That's not what I think is the most sustainable way to make a commitment with those resources. Instead, what we're doing is saying, how do we put our country in a place where the next time we go at major healthcare reform, which, we'll, which we do every decade, that we get what we want out of it? And the first thing I did was I asked hundreds of people, patients, doctors, policy, people, governors, Democrats, Republicans, what does success look like? And what are the new ideas? What are the best ideas to get there? And then what are the things that we should be doing now to, to, to get there? And so on the basis of that, we launched United States of Care, which is a team of people that do, they, they would think they would call themselves a do tank, mm. not a think tank. They are in Washington and they're all over the country um, working in a couple of different principal areas. I think the, the triangle of work that they do, the three dimensions are, one, let's get grounded to what a real people want and what really solves their problem and let's get the voice of people energized and activated so we get to solutions that make sense for people. Number two, how do we do things in states that can demonstrate progress that we can then use at a federal level? And so they're hard at work working with governors and states all around the country and legislatures and advocates and others. And then third, how do we create a base of evidence and a framework that creates a toolkit for policymakers to take what we know and, and give that to them? So United States of Care, differently than almost every other organization, like it doesn't advocate for a single policy. It's going to take lots and lots of decisions, not one slogan. The real work to getting it done politically, financially, structure-wise, system-wise, involves a lot of mechanics and the groundswell of support that's, that's needed. And you know, I'm quite proud of the team. There's no guarantee that they're gonna be successful, but there is for sure a guarantee that without them, we would be much less likely to be successful as a country. Talk a little bit, Andy, about the next wave of, of substantive policymaking what are the key things we have to wrestle with? Ten years now, we've been fighting for the heart and soul of American health reform on the basis of whether or not to repeal the ACA. Now, lots of other stuff has happened, but that's still the big tent topic that we're just, as a country, we're just stuck on. How do you think we get out of this or start to change the conversation in a way to become more productive? Well, look, I mean, let's, let's, let's use the past as our, as our guide here. I mean, if you go back and look decade by decade, you'd say the most significant thing that's happened in healthcare is at Medicaid and Medicare in the 1960s. Before Medicare and Medicaid, one out of three seniors lived in poverty, um, if you can imagine that. 
Today that's like one in 12, which is still high, but it's been a massive difference. In the 90s, children's health insurance, you know, the uninsured rate among kids now is very low. It's actually ticked back up tragically in the last couple of years, but, it's, but it's, it was a major success. Medicare Advantage you know, brought in, in the 2000s, a whole new wave of essentially moving care towards the delivery system. Medicare Part D brought seniors prescription drugs. The ACA, what did the ACA do? The ACA did a couple things. Primarily, ACA changed the bargain with the American public, which says, you know, if you've ever been sick, that's okay. That will not count against you in getting insurance. There is no lifetime limit allowable on your policy. There's 10 things that have to be covered every time. You can change jobs and your income can fluctuate and you can still get insurance. And that was, those things turned out to be phenomenally important. And in the five years since the ACA, we no longer have to listen to people's opinions about whether the ACA is good or bad. Obviously nothing's all good or all bad, but you've got five years of data. Um, you've got dramatic reductions in, in, in early deaths. You've got dramatic reductions in, in cardiac events. You've got um, significant increases in cancer diagnosis. You've got a much lower uh, level of payday lending. You've got much higher levels of home ownership in affected populations. You know, you have, and then you have, you know, 20 million people who are, have some measure of protection they never had before. And then, you know, the ACA, the, the great tragedy of the ACA was that it is um, so politicized that unlike every other piece of legislation we talked about, where whether you voted for it or not, once it passed, your job was to figure out what worked and to fix the things that didn't work. And that happened going back to Medicare, it happened in Medicare Advantage, it happened in Children's Health Insurance, it happened in all those other events. But with the ACA, the country stopped working. Congress stopped working. And so that legislation looks exactly like it did in 2009. And so all of the things that it got right, it got right. All the things it didn't get right, it got worse. And so it's like frozen in glass. And most things we do in life, David, most big things, if we get them 80% right, we think we've done a good job and we fix the other 20%. And with the ACA, that's never been done. So there's a list of things that, that should have been done, that could have been done, that haven't been done, that if they were done, would solve a lot of the things that people complain about. I told this to Paul Ryan during our public debate when he complained to me about some of the things he didn't like about the ACA. But we shouldn't be fighting about the ACA anymore. That's 10 years old. We, should, and we shouldn't care what we call things. I don't think there's any pride of authorship. We should be moving to close the gaps. And so we should be fixated on the things that we think are the biggest challenges. And I, I, I talked about what I think the biggest challenges are earlier. I'm sure everyone has their list. But that's where we should be focused. For Medicaid, what would be, what are the one or two most important changes or, or innovations or, or functions that, that CMS could advance to create the space for improved innovation, improved delivery at the federal level. So the Medicaid program, let's start with it. Or, or the Congress. The Medicaid program it. works great. And here's all I know. It serves four populations, just to give you a simple way to think about Medicaid. Moms and babies, delivers half the babies in the country, mm-hmm. covers half the pregnancies in the country. 
people with disabilities. 40% of the budget of Medicaid goes to people who are living with physical and mental disabilities that the country has to take care of. Seniors, half of the people living in nursing homes are paid for by Medicaid. And finally, uh, low and marginal income people who have seen dramatic improvements in health outcomes since Medicaid expansion over the last <clears throat> few years. Now, it, it's a program that could work better. It's got lots of things that you could change about it. I've written a paper with a, with a Republican, Gail Walensky, that's in JAMA, um, about some of the things that could be done better. But in a nutshell, still too many kids have to wait too long to see a specialist. Reimbursement rates need to be moved up in targeted areas. All of the innovation that's come to Medicare around capitation and primary care medical homes should come to Medicaid as well. And, you know, the the thing about Medicaid that's so interesting is that you've got a set of folks who, by and large, they look like the rest of the population. There's a little higher incidence of mental illness, and there's, but, but mostly what's different is there's uh, lower incomes and people who are living in different zip codes. And, and so if you want to do a better job serving th those folks, it's not about reinventing clinical care. It's reinventing models around people's lives and how they live. So it's really making sure that, you know, if you walk out of a doctor's office and someone on Medicaid walks out of a doctor's office with the same instructions, but you've got a good child care solution and they don't, you're a lot more likely to show up to your follow-up appointment than they are. And so if we understand people's lives better, we can solve these problems. We don't have to wait for Congress. I mean, those are the kinds of things we can create innovations for, we could innovate around. And then from a policy perspective, we need much more money in mental health care, in um, certain specialties, particularly specialties that are around people's needs. And then, you know, we need to really encourage more cultural, local-based care, community health workers, and, and things of that nature. Because the solutions are going to look different for Medicaid populations than they necessarily will for other populations. That's okay, but we've got to invest in them. You talked a little bit about town hall ventures. As, as you all have been developing investment theses and, and identifying places to um, park capital. What is the different lens at which you've looked at those opportunities to make sure capital is both efficacious and doing the job of generating returns, but, mm -hmm. you know, is meeting a place that has been underserved forever? Well, first of all, I have two great partners. Um, you, yes, you getting do. Trevor Price and, and someone named David Whelan, and the three of us have a terrific team of people working with us. And, you know, I think if people know anything about Town Hall, they know that we like to invest in a particular type of company, companies that matter, companies that are trying to solve a problem for a set of, for a population that hasn't been served well. And so, you know, you can look at that from a variety of perspectives. There are, you know, people in the kidney care, kidney, kidney population they tend to be people of color, they tend to be lower income, and their experience tends to be a really bad one on dialysis, when if we invest a little bit more, we can change those outcomes. What's interesting about that population is they've got the highest per member per month cost, and if we get people into home dialysis or into a transplant, we can extend their lives, extend the quality of their lives, and of course, dramatically reduce costs. And I think that's a microcosm you can go to the other end of the spectrum and take something that's a little bit lower PMPM, but high frequency, like maternity and maternal outcomes. And you look at 
the fact that, you know, for a black mom, she's four times more likely to die in childhood than a white mom, regardless of income. And say, well, you, you then take a look around the country in, in neighborhoods like, you know, parts of Washington, D.C., where there's literally no obese, there's no midwives, there's no capacity. So great place for capital, great place for investment. Addiction and recovery, mental health, duels, seniors uh, with housing, all these kinds of problems, basically making entrepreneurs aware that if they have a good idea, whether it's an idea on a napkin or whether it's something that's fully developed or whether it's a business they've been running for a while that can transform care delivery for these communities, we will not only invest, but we will attract an, a set of first-rate, first-class investors. And you know, we've participated in probably, in the first year and a half we've been doing this, probably four to five billion dollars of financings that I think in, to some extent, without maybe overstating it a little bit, but we've been the magnet for essentially saying, we think this can work. And our job is not to just invest in things to have an impact. Our job is to invest in things that, that make a lot of money. And why is that? Because we want people who don't have, who don't really care about necessarily anything other than where the highest return is, to look at this population and say, oh my God, we should be investing in serving this population because there is the greatest opportunity for a dramatic outcome and for transformation and for building big companies. And I'll tell you, three or four of the companies we've invested in, they're on track to be over a billion dollars in revenue in the next couple of years already, based upon progress that they've just made in, in putting in place clinical models that are targeting populations that people have just ignored. So I want to talk about this both as a humanitarian issue, but I also want to talk about it as a very classic investment opportunity. And I want people, when people talk about town hall ventures, uh, I want them to say, wow, that, those guys know where to put capital to solve massive problems, and I'd like to invest alongside them. Not, wow, those are awfully nice guys and girls and who, have a, who, who invest in things that matter, but they invest in things that are going to be very successful. And that's part of the formula, along with policy, along with some of these other things we've talked about, for getting this country right. I think you've you have you've reconfigured I think through Town Hall Ventures the lens through which capital examines opportunities and closing this efficiency gap that we have in the system if there's a finite amount of money in the system and that that money is underwriting a system that is fragmented and diffuse and under-resourced and, and has access challenges you've been able to change that lens so capital does a much more efficient job of, of shifting our supply curve a little further to the right than just philanthropic funding of another center or another psych worker or something of that nature. It's both. I'm so appreciative of everybody working in the sector in every element in whatever form. So I, I think it plays a role and it should play a bit, capital should play a bigger role with great entrepreneurs and with support who, who want to mold into the system, they don't want it. But, but th that's different from saying that, that, that they should take it over from people who are doing it well today. Well, I want to actually hit on that for a minute because I, I think there's, there's another entry point into this investment, this investment idea that, I, that I've been thinking a lot about. I'll use just a very quick example of this, and I'd love you to respond. You can use this as an example or any other example you want. But in Chicago, 
there's this um, little nonprofit grant-funded company called Aclavis. Aclavis was spun out um, of UIC. The University of Illinois Chicago had a, a, a violence intervention, violence interruption program called Cure Violence. And so when Cure Violence spun out Aclavis, Aclavis built this business where they contract with uh, level one trauma centers throughout the city of Chicago. And a victim comes in who's been stabbed, shot, or jumped on. The ED will call a um, what we'll call a dispatcher, and that that commences something called a golden hour, where they'll deploy a, a hyper local, typically a reformed gang member, to go you know, first to the the waiting room, and and he or she will de-escalate the situation with the family to try and prevent any kind of retaliatory event, and, and kind of take a harm reduction approach, and then they will go and engage the patient or the victim, and. Um, in some cases, the victim was just a totally non-complicit bystander that was wounded. In other cases, they, they may, like literally, this is the parlance I hear from Aclavis. In other cases, they may say, just sew me up, doc, so I can go back and get the son of a bitch that shot me. And in other cases, there's a, there's a moment of conciliation for that mm-hmm. victim wanting to make a change. So Aclavis, when that patient is discharged, Aclavis supports that patient in accessing child care, getting their GED, relocation, housing, mental health services, and the like. They become this interesting mm. trauma-informed medical home model. Mm. Here's, here's the question I'm leading up to. That's really interesting. And I'll bet if I had the right data, I could quantify and make an actuarial case that somewhere up the payment line, somebody's getting some value for that. And yet, I can't make that case. Yeah. So this lives on grant funding. So here's right. a question. Yeah. I know that is a long wind up. That's no, it's great. Longest it's so, wind it's so up interesting. How, how do you convert something like that to get powered by markets well, and look, capital? Look, first of all, I love that story. I love every story like it. And I love for capital to help take things like that that work and help it work better and help it scale because it's exactly the kind of stuff that should be happening. I think you can just return a question to you. If that person showed up <laughs> in the gang if that person showed up in the ER and had cancer, would you ask what's the ROI of treating them? No. You just treat them. You just treat them. You just treat them. So if someone has gone through trauma, been shot, why should there have to be an ROI to treat them? That's a philosophical question. But but why should there be an ROI to give people the best services known to man? Why should I be reduced to an ROI? Why, when I show up and I've got a mental health problem, do you look at me different than if I have cancer and say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna invest in this person because of some downstream cost reduction. So I, I, think, we have to, I think we have to make sure that's not our only lens I agree with that. I'm going to just return this back to you first, just because we are we're having a capital conversation. The the answer to all of your questions is an emphatic no. We should never look at a patient that way. But we also live in a world of scarcity, um, where we have finite dollars that can provide finite services for finite things. I've got a company like Aclavis that I know creates value, and I know they're limited because every year they're on a treadmill. Mm-hmm. Well, they've got to go ask for the next $10 million in grant funding to let them do their work versus a capacity to scale it. I want to just kind of know where sure. is that, yeah. where's so look, that breaking point? Yeah, I mean, look, start with data, right? Start with data. What are, you, what are they accomplishing? And the data needs to become a story, and the story needs to become a movement. That could become for-profit or not-for-profit. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It could, be, it could be either, and it could be some of both. And it could be, you know, 
there's different actors in our system, right? There's religious faith-based organizations. There are entrepreneurs and philanthropists. There are institutions that are for-profit institutions but have foundations because they have more money than God should have allowed them to make. There are entrepreneurial companies and ventures. And all approaches uh, have drawbacks and have benefits. But if that organization has someone like, like yourself who can help them focus on the question of what is the data telling me what works and what doesn't, and then how do I tell that story? Whether you're in the, telling that story in the living room of a philanthropist or a foundation board or a venture capital firm in Menlo Park, you know, we, need the, we need to get those people the ability to get that story told. You know, Gates Foundation has more money than any of the investment firms um, do, and there's there's lots and lots of of, of foundations. So it, it's a tough road, but the more you can demonstrate success, and again, I wouldn't make sure we just don't limit success to it has a downstream ROI. We're all trained that way, and we all should actually make that part of the story. But I like reminding people um, that if someone invested in you and your life, if they stopped to think whether there'd be an ROI before they made that investment, never, <laughs> you'd never get where you got. That is, uh, you'd never get where you that got. Is the tr- that is so, the truth. So at some, at some point, like healthcare organizations, hospitals, health plans, a lot of them get tax exempt status from the government the work that they do, they are hired by taxpayers to, to solve these problems. They're resourced to by taxpayers. solve these problems. And so I, I recognize everybody feels resource constrained. The question is, how do you make the distinction on where you're spending the resource? And today, we make it based on means. We make it somewhat based on the color of people's skin. We make it based upon their access to our system, we make it sure, probably based on whether or not we think we'll be successful. So if someone like this organization comes along and says, I can solve one piece of that problem, we can be successful. And we can make a big difference. Then organizations who really want to consider themselves part of the community and taking advantage of the tax breaks and everything else that they take advantage of should absolutely be publicly pressured to embrace those kinds of solutions. I think the reason, I think the reason it's interesting and, and just frankly, it's, it's a salient subject, and, and I know you recognize this, but, but, but it's, it's a bit historical and a bit unprecedented, um, at least in this context, for capital to look at these problems through this type of lens in this system for these types of communities and populations. And I think on the one hand, there are very clear cases, as, as you guys have identified through the fund, to make an investment, mm-hmm. inject capital, and, cre- and create a lot of good by doing that. I think it's going to be interesting over the next few years to identify those other innovations that, that have existed for some time and have an evidence base, but we haven't figured out how to make the economics quite work in a way that will allow them to access capital markets, revenue models, housing. to scale and grow. Housing. Housing. Affordable housing. Yes, right. Yeah. Okay, one more. Investments we need to make. Best we know, you and I both know, if you and I were like granted wishes from a genie to make the healthcare system better and we could get 
people access to affordable housing, we'd probably make that one of our three Absolutely. wishes because we know that that would lead to people being able to be healthier and live healthier. And if you said, well, boy, that takes a lot of capital, and we both said, we'd both probably be able to say we know where to find that capital, excuse me. Right. Uh, that capital exists out there. If that capital is in, rightly in search of why is this the right place for me to put the capital here, what's going to compel them to do that? Either they're going to con- be able to participate in the benefit somehow, or they've got some commitment, some ownership stake in that community and in those resources. Right now, there's too many people that are just sitting in that category where no one feels enough ownership, no one feels enough connection, no one feels enough obligation. And people can easily justify moving their dollars into other places. And I'm not above, of all the things, I'm not above, I mean, I want to make the business case, but I'm also not above publicly calling on people because look, I, I, I'll be honest, I did that in my role at CMS. I would come in, talk to a hospital who would tell me about what a nice job they're doing with the triple aim, which is cost moving the patient experience and, and their uh, cost of care and the quality outcomes up. And I would say, I don't care about the average. Tell me how your bottom quartile is doing and how far that is from your top quartile. And, and, and tell me how you're going to move the, top, the bottom quartile up. And that is... And if we're paying, if we're, we're paying these hospitals by giving them tax breaks, they better be doing that. Now we got to make it easier for them to do that. We got to give them better innovation. We got to make their incentives better. And we, have, we they're not in this alone. And so I'm not pointing fingers uh, at hospitals, but they need to feel that obligation because if they're just going to do what falls above the ROI line alone then it's easy to justify what you put above the ROI line. And so this has to be part of what it means to exist in the healthcare system in a community. It has to be part of the culture. It has to come from the top. It has to be part of the commitment. And then within that, quite confident we can make business cases. But I would just warn everybody that the business case alone is not what you're doing in healthcare. I guarantee you, if you're listening to this podcast, you are not in healthcare because of the business case. So make the business case, use the business case, but use it to do something important. I love that. It was well said. Let's round this out and talk a little bit about the primary topic that I I think at least brings us together um, in this venue, the Medicaid Transformation Project. You had really started to to advance this idea with our friends at Avia before I had gotten involved. I'd love you to opine for a couple minutes. What do you think the project itself has gotten right? And and what do you think the potential is? And and what's kind of your clarion call for anyone that is or isn't involved in transforming Medicaid. Yeah. Well, you and I know there's things that have happened that wouldn't have happened without this project. What do I mean? I mean, actions taken, innovations to serve this population in improving their mental health care, in getting the better community-based care, in improving care for moms and babies. And that's the power of 30 large, impactful systems who are saying, I'm excited about serving the whole of my community and I'm excited by bringing new ideas and innovation to do it. And one of the things that's a secret to all this that you know and I know and people in this project know 
it's, it's energizing to bring innovation to a problem, right? Problems drag us down. Problems are awful. We don't like problems. We deal with problems all day long. And if we bring a lens of being mired in these problems, it's very hard to act. But what these systems have done is they've said, screw it. We're going to bring a lens of invention, new idea, implementation, execution, problem solving, measurement, partnership, cooperation, all positive words, all positive things to a population that we haven't done as good a job serving as we want to. And indeed, there is a massive business case here because if we can take care of lower reimbursing populations outside of the four walls of the expensive hospital, maybe at home, maybe in the community settings, if we can help them with tools, we can help them digitally, then we're going to be better off financially and we're going to be investing in their health. And that feels good for a hospital to feel like they're investing in the health of their population feels good, but it also puts them in a better situation financially. And these systems are all at various stages of having figured that out. Some are all the way there, some are part of the way there. Uh, all of them are committed to it. All of them are incredible. So, you know, I, I, I do want to make sure we talk about Avia, but as well, because th without them, all of this is just, you know, a, a, a concept. But these systems um, are doing stuff and they're making the world better. Now, that may have to turn into 10,000 things. And those 29 systems are going to need to turn into 300 systems. But this is how change happens. And what do you think has to happen to go to 10,000 things, 50,000 things, 100,000 things? This could even exist outside of the project. Any, any, any move, social movement has to have a couple things. It has to be easy to understand. It has to be reframed well and around a very specific and clear problem. It needs to have local examples. It needs to have stories. And it needs to have an actor that has the capability to bring this more broadly, which in this case I do believe is Avia, but it's also the system leaders themselves. So that's true whether you're talking, no matter what you're talking about. Campaign to commit to, to end smoking, the campaign to legalize marijuana, the campaign to make it uh, legal for same-sex couples to marry, any campaign of any grounds effort. I mean, look, I, I spent a lot of time studying how these things happen, requires those elements to spread. And when they have those elements, it's amazing how quickly it can happen. When they don't have those elements, it's amazing how long you can hammer against a problem without making progress. So we started the we started the discussion around ten year window. Obviously, this this will be an important ten years. Are you optimistic? You know, the thing that makes you optimistic is work and progress. So every day that I show up, and every day that another person on this project shows up, and every day that a person in a health system is doing something is reason for optimism, right? Because they weren't doing something, they weren't, if they weren't, we weren't doing that the day before, the year before, the week before. It's incredibly optimistic, right? Show up, show up to one of the quarterly events focused in these areas and 
you're, you go outrageously blind with optimism, right? Because you hear eight or 10 entrepreneurs talking about what they're doing for moms and babies. You'll hear people in health systems talk about what they're doing. You'll see hundreds of people in a room basically saying, this is what I signed up for. And I don't mean for this conference, I mean for why I'm in healthcare. You will see a level of people who are going, you know, I got a job to do, there's so many hours in the day, but there are certain things that give us more energy to get our work done, right? And those are the things that remind us of why we're doing it. And it's, and it's when we're working with great people, and it's collaboration with others, and it's seeing the generous spirit of other organizations, and it's having a bit of a toolkit that Avia gives them, and all of a sudden, people feel empowered to get stuff done. So whenever there's a big problem, if you ask yourself, are you optimistic that the big problem gets solved? Try asking yourself, are you optimistic that you can do your share of that problem solving today? And that tomorrow you can do that solving tomorrow? And then you keep on that path. And you keep asking yourself, what will get me to the next day and the next day and the next day? But you don't look too far ahead because then you'll lose your optimism at some point. When you look too far out and the problem gets too big, yeah. it will, your optimism will slip into cynicism because that's where we've all been trained. But if you say, can I, at Sisters of the Midwest Hospital, do this to help the moms in our community that we are doing now, you'll feel incredibly optimistic. And when you add that up with all the other dots on the map, and then you get to next year and you go, yeah, last year that was our issue. And you'll feel the next challenge. You won't feel the pride of what you just did. You'll feel like you've got a new baseline. Because where we, where we sit in five years, that'll be the baseline. And in five years, we will have made some years of progress, but that'll be behind us and we will be focused on what comes next and we will feel the dread and the challenge of those problems. But if we attack them the same way, it's amazing what happens and it's amazing how you can get them behind you. I think it, uh, it gives a lot of credence to, to the role storytelling plays in this. To your point, one of, you know, one of the things that has been just an incredible professional experience to to track close to 120 different things happening across the country. But, but even that, those are, of course, not the only 120 things happening right. across the country. Right. There's hundreds of things. Right. And good men and women, thoughtful, they've dedicated their lives and their careers and their passions and their talents to, to doing more uh, for those who have less. And the better we can get it, and not only telling those stories, but systematizing those stories in the context of good policy, you know, adding capital to the equation to do a different kind of job in this community, and really thinking about you know, shedding cynicism and, and fundamentally doing things differently at health institutions than we've done right. before. And, and then, Dave, you got to just right ask path. yourself, why should we be worse in this country than other countries? And look, it's not easy anywhere in the world no one does everything right. But in most countries, they do a few things we don't. They can take off the table the question of whether or not you'll be able to afford the care you need. I was in the drugstore this week, and a guy next to me in the pharmacy line was someone who had mental disabilities, asked for a very specific prescription. 
And the pharmacist cheerfully said, well, we have all three of your prescriptions ready now. He said, no, I only want the one. And he named the name. And I quickly Googled it, and it was for schizophrenia. And he, and he said, I don't have the money for the other two. That would just never happen in so many other countries. So our life expectancy in the U.S. is declining for three years in a row. We're the only developed country and one of the few countries on the planet where our life expectancy is declining. And, you know, there are moments like that one that I just happen to witness every day. All and over the country. All over the country. They're heartbreaking. And, you know, I don't know what two medicines he didn't take. I was quite honestly shamed for a week that I didn't butt my nose in and buy him those medicines, but it felt hazardous. It felt impermanent. It felt like this guy was not in the mood that he was going to welcome that. But, but you know, I witnessed a crime. Pure and simple. It's a crime. It's legal, but it's a crime. Yeah. And the remedy lives at this systems level that we both in different ways, and, and you in particular, have dedicated your talents to. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to be on this, and we'll continue to do this in the future. And the leadership, both in the United States of Care, Town Hall Ventures, and this project, it adds a lot to an ecosystem that's been starving for this kind of lens for a long time. So more well, to come. Well, good. Well, David, having a passionate leader like you, who gets the big picture, gets the day-to-day picture, is eminently curious, has an insatiable appetite to solve problems, and who always asks yourself, what's the right thing to do here? We're so lucky. I, I truly mean that. You'll instantly say that there's other people on the project who are doing great things, and, and yes, we don't have time to mention them all. So I'll mention you because you're here. as an opportunity to thank you. This project doesn't happen without heart. Um, it doesn't happen without massive intelligence. And you bring that, and you wake in that, and you bring it out of all these great systems who also have that, but they need to see it. The inspiration you show them, I think, helps bring it out. So thank you for that. Thank you. That's kind of you to say. I appreciate that friendship and support, and look forward to checking in and talking about this again. We'll do it without the microphones. Yeah. We'll do it with the microphones. <laughs> Thanks, man.